With the ongoing war in Ukraine since February of 2022, there has been a titanic amount of warranted coverage around the military, geostrategic, and geopolitical implications of this conflict. However, today, as time allows, we want to, we want to cover some of the other aspects of the Ukraine story, from the ongoing brain drain and flight of professionals and creative classes from Russia to the role of history and rhetoric around the war. We will also touch on the way the conflict has been framed by the extreme left and right in and outside of Russia, as well as how the Global South views the conflict. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Maxim Matsevich, who is Professor of History here at Seton Hall's College of Arts and Sciences. He's also the director of the Russia and Far East European Studies Program and is a native of St. Petersburg. He specializes in African and Russian history and has written extensively about the cultural and political interactions between the two regions. Dr. Matsevich, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So just to start off, how does kind of the social structure look like within Russia? We hear about this brain jarring and the big flight of manpower, whether it be um, young men fleeing partial mobilization or, you know, high profile elites. You know, what does it look like compared to the United States? Who's leaving? And they have different reasons for doing so. Well, a lot of people who've left uh, since uh, the outbreak of the war, since Russia attacked on February 24th, uh, 2022, a lot of people left from the cities. Uh, the creative classes, so-called young professionals. Uh, and generally, when we talk about the class social structure in the country and compare it, contrast with the United States, uh, I think there is some overlap, obviously, but there is this divide between the urban and rural settings. The difference is that there are few cities uh, where uh, the lifestyle has really dramatically improved after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Overall, the country, of course, uh, underwent a lot of changes and uh, the economy rose actually in the last 20 years but a lot of the gains took place in the cities uh, so people the urban intelligence uh, the professional classes the so-called creatives uh, they benefited from those changes uh, the rest of the country probably not so much so uh, and uh, another division is between ethnic minorities and other Russians especially those who live in the cities uh, we can see that, for example, especially before the introduction of this so-called partial mobilization, a lot of the soldiers actually came from ethnic minority regions, mm. uh, which tend to be impoverished. Uh, so there is this gap, there was this gap until the introduction of mobilization, which separated the urban classes, those who are actually more privileged, more well-off, and the rest of the country. So, you know, for those not familiar with the matter, where would some of these ethnic minorities be located, you know, besides just normal Russian-speaking Russians from Moscow or St. Petersburg or, or Novorossiysk or some of these larger cities? Uh, of course. Uh, well, first of all, all, probably most Russian cities now are multi-ethnic. Mm. Uh, so uh, you can't really say that Moscow is a Russian-Russian city mm -hmm. because there are so many ethnic minorities, people coming from across uh, what used to be the Soviet Union, uh, there are still autonomous regions in the Far East, for example, uh, part of the Arctic North uh, in the Caucasus. And those people, it's a very multi-ethnic country. Those people have their own languages, they have their own uh, customs, traditions, uh, different religions. Uh, for example, of course, Russians are overwhelmingly, over 85% are Russian Orthodox, uh, Eastern Orthodox, while uh, a lot of people who live in uh, uh, other parts of the Soviet Union, particularly in the uh, former Soviet Union, I should say, of course, uh, particularly in the Caucasus, are Muslim, 
uh, the former Soviet republics, which now are independent states in Central Asia, are overwhelmingly Muslim. So there is this religious diversity, uh, but also a lot of ethnic diversity in the country. Sure. And then just kind of returning to the flight of some of these you know, elite classes, how has the Kremlin handled this? You know, I mean, have there been um, attempts to stop them from leaving the country, which we've heard about occasionally? Have they gotten more serious as the war has dragged on? Are the consequences for their relatives um, after they leave, if, they, if they're able to? So far, the response has been very strange. Uh, almost a million people left the country. And uh, the power elites, the Kremlin, so far they have largely ignored the exodus. Mm -hmm. So they pretend like nothing is happening, really. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can explain it um, in a number of ways. Uh, one explanation is that the Kremlin doesn't really care because the people who are leaving are the ones who are not playing ball with the Kremlin. So, you know, by, uh, you know, so what if they lose a few hundred thousand people? This is not the people they can rely on or would like to rely on in fulfillment of their agenda. Uh, so in that regard, you know, this exodus has been, exodus has been largely ignored so far. Now, uh, late in September, they introduced the so-called partial mobilization, which is essentially mobilization. And that affected people across class divide mm. and across ethnic divide. And that's where things got a little bit more serious. Uh, more people fled the country, of course. Uh, but again, when you look at how the regime is handling the exodus, it's very haphazard. You know, sometimes they would catch someone and, you know, s mm. put someone in the uniform and send them off to train or to fight in Ukraine. In many cases, it seems everything is just very poorly organized. Mm. Uh, so you hear a lot of stories about people getting the summons from the commissariat, and uh, the best advice people get is just ignore it. Just <laughs> don't go there, uh, don't go to kill, don't go to, uh, uh, to die, yeah. and most likely there will be no consequences. Of course, uh, this doesn't, in my opinion, reduce the cruelty yeah. of what's happening, because you know behind all this, uh, stories of uh, inefficiency and uh, the failure of the administrative structures. You know, there are some hard facts, and those hard facts are the murder of people uh, on a very large scale. Yeah. So just changing gears a little bit to kind of turn to the internal politics of Russia, which mm -hmm. many normal people in the U.S. will not be, you know, relatively familiar, at least in any intimate sense. So what is the public sentiment toward the war? I mean, which is, it was initially sold, at least, as a special military operation. Um, what does the public sentiment within Russia look like today as it as compared to February when this began? Well, I don't live in Russia, uh, even though I'm in touch with a lot of mm -hmm. people over there, so it's hard to tell. Uh, the official polling is very strange. It shows very significant support uh, for the war, uh, which, of course, they don't call the war. They call it euphemistically the special military operation, but it's, it's a war. Um, but again, to what extent people will actually respond honestly mm -hmm. to the polling in the dictatorship? Mm -hmm. uh, it's not clear. Uh, it seems that until the introduction of the mobilization in late September, um, especially in the cities, St. Petersburg, Moscow, uh, Ekaterinburg, the dominant sentiment was that of, if not indifference, but kind of detachment from what's going on. Uh, and that comes through even in conversations with people because, of course, everyone knows what's happening. But at the same time, people will talk about the vacation. They would talk about their everyday life. They would make a point of not addressing the elephant in the room, which is this horrible war that's mm. happening mm. Uh, because the Russian army invaded a neighboring state. Um, and um, 
maybe it's a self-defense mechanism at work a little bit, but also people, I think, feel very powerless. Mm. And uh, there has been a lot of debates lately, uh, especially among immigrants, people who live outside of Russia, accusing, blaming Russians for not being more assertive. You know, mm. of course, a lot of Ukrainians are blaming Russians for not being more assertive, not claiming their right vis-a-vis uh, -vis this really criminal regime. And uh, when it comes to Ukrainians, I totally understand their sentiments. You know, they're being bombed, their lives being destroyed. I absolutely get it. But I think Ukraine and Russia have had very different trajectories after the end of the Soviet Union. Uh, Russians were not allowed, especially after the end of the 1990s, to develop civil society. Mm. Uh, while Ukraine, with all its flaws and uh, all its problems and corruption, whatnot, it did develop a very vibrant mm. civil society. I know Ukrainians, and proudly so, and uh, rightly so, are very proud of this achievement. Mm. You know, when in 2014, uh, their president, who uh, had been bribed by the Russians, refused to sign up uh, the association agreement with the European Union, almost two million people took the, to the streets. This would have mm. never happened in <coughs> Russia. And Ukrainians like to talk about it. But again, we have to look at what has actually transpired in Russia in the last 20 years. Mm. And that was a very methodical, very relentless uh, dismantling of civil society. Mm. Uh, so people just don't feel they can do anything. You know, I suspect that most people, and there is some indirect indications of this, are not happy with mm. what's happening, of course, very few people won that war. You know, I think the radical right is actually fairly small. Uh, but I think the indifference or apathy, you know, this idea that fatalism, you know, there is nothing we can do. We can change mm. the circumstances. They're overwhelming. You know, that's very much the case, it seems. Yeah, so, I mean, regardless of how powerless some people feel, it seems that the Kremlin is still trying to sell this to the people, right? You see this with some of these grandiose speeches that are meant to, you know, be put in a history book from mm -hmm. kind of the, the scale of it to kind of all the people brought in almost as actors in these rallies. You even see these bizarre stunts, um, you know, out of Chechnya with Kadyrov presenting, you know, caption, captured uh, Ukrainian service members with his teenage sons um, in making a big show of setting them off to fight in mm -hmm. Ukraine. Um, you know, what should we make of the way the Kremlin is trying to sell this? Are they, how much latitude are they giving to different parts of what's left of the political spectrum within Russia? Um, to try and justify this. You know, how does this look like from the right, which kind of has this almost 19th century-esque, mm -hmm. you know, czarist um, justification for it? And how does it look like for some of the left that may or may not, you know, still exist in, in the political space there? Yeah, the left, I think, uh, is uh, uh, not very prominent in uh, modern-day yeah. Russia. Uh, the Kremlin, I'm sure, is much more concerned with the right, mm -hmm. with the nationalist right, than they're concerned with the left or with the urban intelligentsia, you mm. know, who, the liberals. Oh, okay. yeah. uh, those, I don't think they scare them. Uh, so whatever they do, I think they're trying to appease the right because uh, the discourse inside of Russia right now is such that the nationalist right is very unhappy about what Putin is doing. Uh, they don't think he's going far enough. They don't think he's being assertive enough. Uh, they think uh, that uh, the Russian army needs to be far more decisive in what they do. Uh, and uh, I think the Kremlin is trying to appease that kind of nationalist radical right faction. Uh, the left, I don't think it really plays any role. Uh, there is a communist party, but you know, it's a sham party. It's not a real party. Uh, it's uh, an affiliate of uh, uh, the regime mm. and it serves its purposes. Uh, so in that regard, I think um, the Kremlin 
whatever they do, it seems to me the main target audience is the radical right, uh, which is ascendant in Russia. And uh, the nationalism, because the Kremlin, uh, they also tap into nationalist tropes. Mm. So these are their natural constituents. Uh, but those natural constituents, and uh, Kadira, strangely enough, is probably a representative of that kind of cohort. Uh, they want more from the war than the Kremlin is willing or capable of delivering right now. Uh, the stunt with Kadyrov you mentioned was very, I mean, it was horrifying, uh, but it was very interesting because there is a number of ways in which you can interpret uh, what happened uh, when he was presented uh, by his children, I think, with three Ukrainian captives, you know, an almost kind of medieval ancient <laughs> Roman ritual, yeah, yeah. you know, very terrifying. Um, it's not clear what they were trying to achieve. It was performative. It's not mm -hmm. even clear. I don't know. I don't have the information. You know, my first, qu the first question I had are these the real POWs. You know, right. uh, you know, it was not clear to me. Maybe they were. I don't. I don't really know. Uh, but who is the target audience of this theater? At first, I thought the most natural response is Ukrainians. You know, you want mm -hmm. to terrify Ukrainians. You want <coughs> to show them there are no limits. We can do cruel, despicable right. things. But I don't think it was the Ukrainians who were the target of that cruel circus. I think more likely it was the Russian public mm. uh, because there is this um, racial ethnic aspect, um, religious aspect to what's going on because Kadyrov, of course, he's the leader of Chechnya, which is a Muslim republic which fought two wars against Russia trying to gain its independence. Uh, Kadyrov, who came to power as a young man, became eventually an ally, strategic ally of Putin. Uh, he works for the regime, but he also commands a huge and apparently quite capable army. So um, he's used by the regime to terrify the Russian population because mm. uh, all these old kind of racialist tropes, when they look at the Caucasus, when they look at Muslim republics, quite often the Russians see the strange people who are very cruel, uh, who are mm. very militant. And uh, Putin, I think, uses that racist fear, mm. you know, to terrify yeah. the population. But I also thought that maybe the target was Putin himself. Mm. Uh, the message was sent to him that, hey, look, here is what we can do. There is no limit to how far we can go. You want to be scared of us. And, uh, you know, I think that's the danger we're facing right now, that we have the rise of these militias, mm. you know, because, you know, in the West, I think Putin is conceived sometimes as this, like, all-powerful all czar who is in charge of the system. Everything is centralized. Yeah. He is in charge of everything. I think the reality is, far more murky and far more complicated. Uh, it seems to me that uh, I don't know to what extent he can actually control people like Kadyrov, for yeah. example, or people like Prigozhin, who also has his own army, his private mercenary force, the Wagner group. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that point is very kindly taken because I think m most of the mainstream Western press tends to paint Kadyrov in kind of a white, in a light, as kind of a bit of a, a wolfhound. You know, he's someone who can help herd the Russian population wherever Putin wants him to go, but he's actually has a degree of latitude to act independently and, and, and help push kind of from this ultra-naturalist direction on the Kremlin to you know, have these more maximalist approaches to the war. Um, you know, moving to the kind of historical cultural rhetoric, which we've seen plenty of, what has that looked like in February when you kind of have this denazification rhetoric to today where, you know, you, you see more of a recall to, to Lenin and Stalin and this whole debate of the Ukrainian SSR um, and this, this kind of grand appeal to history. Um, how has that changed? You know, what is the Kremlin putting out 
at the, at the moment? What does that look like? Well, when the war started, uh, I think the Russians were expecting to be in Kiev within 72 hours, and the Americans too. <laughs> you know, they thought yeah. that the Russian army would enter Kiev uh, within three or four days, and they didn't. They failed. So, essentially, they lost the war. And I know it sounds like a grand statement to make, uh, and the war is not over. But I think they lost the kind of war they had been prepared to fight. So what happened, uh, whatever happened after February 24th, is not what they had planned for. Uh, and the rhetoric has changed. In a way, I see this as normalizing something that's completely absurd and abnormal. Mm. You know, the idea was, you know, when they launched the war, there, was, there were no reasons for that war. Uh, the war was completely an invented event. But it was supposed to be this performative event. You know, sort of three days, we're marching through Kiev, we negotiate, it's going to be beautiful. Uh, that's not what happened. This became a real horrifying war. Uh, and Ukrainians are fighting better and better, and they're winning battles, as we saw outside of Kharkiv, and now apparently in the south. Uh, so now what the Kremlin is doing, I think they're normalizing what really from the very beginning was a very absurd kind of development, you know, this launching of that idiotic war. Uh, and they do this by talking about the war as something that sort of came from out of space. Mm. Like, it was not a decision of a particular individual or a particular group of elites mm. to launch this war. And the way it's discussed in uh, uh, Russian press or in the Russian media, on television, of course, it's like it just happened. You know, it's an event akin to uh, Storm Sandy. Right. It, right. it just yeah. comes <laughs> because the weather is such that it had to happen. Yeah. And uh, in a way, it's a smart way to talk about something that's so abnormal and something that's so absurd. You know, sort of normalize it as an expression of something that was inevitable. Right. And that's how it's discussed, I think, in the, uh, Russian media. And that's how people begin to talk about it. You know, I've heard, and of course people want to protect themselves, they talk about the situation yeah. or about what happened or the circumstances that created this. You know, everything sounds very vague and it's very frustrating, but you know, I understand I'm not in Russia, so it's easy for me to say. But when you hear, when people talk about something that actually is very concrete and specific, like the bombs falling on the cities, right? right you know, yeah. and the tanks, you know, driving over human beings. And they talk about it as if this is, uh, you know, some act of God, right? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, s some of that honestly reminds me of the kind of 2003 will be greeted as liberators um, rhetoric. Although they've had a, a bit of a distinctly historical aspect to some of the rhetoric that you know, we didn't see with the U.S. case in, in, in 2003. When Putin kind of makes these appeals to history saying that, you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union was one of the worst events to happen, not just in the 20th century, but, you know, the last millennia. And he appeals to Stalin and seems to condemn Lenin, you know. What can we make of this? How, how, how is the Kremlin trying to reinterpret kind of the recent and then the farther Soviet past in order to justify you know, their ongoing campaign there? That's a great question. Uh, I always believe that the most terrifying thing a dictator can do is imagine himself, and usually it's a guy, uh, a historian. Uh, so uh, when someone stays in power for as long as Putin has, you know, for 22, 23 years, um, there is a point when people begin to see themselves as uh, characters and agents of history. Mm. And uh, combine this with fairly poor education, uh, unlimited access to power and resources, and uh, we get what we get. We get a war. Yeah. 
uh, as a result of this. Uh, I think uh, a reference to Stalin and Lenin are interesting. Lenin is not uh, held in high esteem uh, mm. by the current um, elites, uh, but Stalin is. And the question is why? What happened? Well, because you know many of these people actually they came through the hierarchy of the Communist Party. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. Putin himself was the member of the Communist Party. Uh, people closest to him came from the KGB or foreign intelligence. You know, party apparatchiks, mm. uh, Komsomol leaders. You know, these are people who, uh, in their youth at least, or in their as young adults, were steeped in Soviet ideology. So what happened to them? Well, a couple of things. One of them is quite clear that that ideology, especially by the 70s, 80s, when they came of age, was very shallow. Mm. You know, no one, very few people took it seriously. You know, it was not like back in the 20s and 30s when people really believed. Very few people believed mm. in this stuff. Uh, I mean, Marxism, Leninism. And certainly uh, these people didn't. Uh, but apparently what they did believe in was this idea of empire. And uh, this came as a surprise, not entirely a surprise. That's what Putin talked about when he talked about the uh, tragedy of the collapse of the Soviet Union, the mm -hmm. geopolitical uh, catastrophe, as he called it. Uh, he didn't talk about the end of Marxism-Leninism. I think he talked about the end of empire. Mm -hmm. And in that regard, uh, Lenin is not particularly well respected because uh, after Bolsheviks came to power in 1917, uh, Lenin oversees the dismantling of the Russian Empire. Uh, he lets eventually, and you know, he didn't do this because he wanted to necessarily, you know, mm. the civil war presented him with uh, a fait accompli, like with Finland, for example. Mm. But we see the end result of this is that the empire shrunk. You know, they mm -hmm. let Poland mm. go, they let Finland go, yeah. the Baltics, uh, some other areas, and the Soviet Union, as gigantic, as huge as it was, it was still smaller than the Russian Empire. Right. And Stalin, of course, mm -hmm. is viewed by this crowd as uh, someone who is more, was more decisive, someone who was, uh, uh, who of course presided over the victory in the what the Russians, the Soviets called the Great Patriotic War, which was the Russian segment of the Second World War, and because of that, uh, he is assigned and uh, an and expansion of the territory. You know, the mm -hmm. taking of Western Ukraine, for example, or parts of Eastern Poland or of the Baltics. So, in that regard. Uh, I think Stalin is far better respected by these new imperialists. So to kind of change gears um, again really quick, looking outside of Russia, you know, we see in some spaces in the political left, the extreme left in the West, in Europe um, and the United States, particularly with people who I, I'd say identify as kind of more orthodox Marxist-Leninists, you see this bizarre rhetoric of painting the Russian campaign in Ukraine as this anti-imperialist kind of you know, and, you know, defender of the downtrodden, and you know, um, and and third or third third world or global south from from Western neocolonialism, which somehow comes via NATO. You know, what should we make of this? And is Russia trying to kind of actually sell that idea to people outside of itself, even though there's not much of a serious um, political left within Russia? Right. Um, well, this is not a new problem. <laughs> you know, those of yeah. us who come uh, from the Soviet Union are like I. Uh, where I was born and raised and lived and served in the army years ago, uh, very familiar with this phenomenon. And there was even a term, useful idiots, that was <laughs> thrown around and sometimes actually, I think, over overused yeah. by some. I think a lot of this has to do uh, with um, 
self-centeredness mm -hmm. of the Western discourse, particularly here in the United States, but it doesn't have to be in the United States. It could be elsewhere in the West, where people primarily look at the history of the West and center it. And even though they claim to be anti-imperialist, in a way, I think they're quite imperialist in the way they center the experience of, uh, uh, for example, Western colonialism, right? Mm -hmm. You know, or the experience of uh, Western racism. Uh, all horrible things, don't get me wrong. But what gets lost in this conversation is that the West is not necessarily the center of the universe, you know, that bad things yeah. happen elsewhere. Right. And uh, people feel very uncomfortable discussing those bad things, and that's why there is very little conversation about the Uyghurs in China or about what's happening in Iran right now. Right. Yeah. Uh, so this is an ongoing problem, of course. Uh, do Russians use it? Yeah, they absolutely. First of all, a lot of these guys came from the KGB. They've worked with those ideas for a very long time, you know. Right. And uh, and frankly, um, the flaws of American democracies, American uh, or Western democracy, the history of Western racism and colonialism, mm -hmm. it's kind of a gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> uh, so they yeah. uh, they do take advantage of this, and we know that because, for example, uh, the radical left and the radical right in Europe, especially, are often directly financed by the Russians. Uh, mm -hmm. The Russian, uh, I don't think the Russians are financially involved in America. You know, I think Americans have more money anyway, but, <laughs> uh, but certainly like through uh, social media campaigns, you know, they're mm -hmm. also trying to influence those. So there is nothing particularly new there. Uh, they work both with the extreme, or they try to influence both the extreme left and the extreme right, which in this case sometimes find common uh, cause especially when it comes to foreign policy. Mm. So speaking about kind of moving the center away from the West and the Western story with Ukraine, you know, let's turn to the Global South, which, you, you know, you specialize in kind of Russia's historical interactions and encounters with um, Africa, the Middle East, and, you know, other parts of the world that aren't just this kind of you know, binary Russia versus the West story that we've had, you know, pretty much since 1945 and arguably earlier. How, has, how have Russian relations with the Middle East or Africa changed since the conflict started, you know, um, Russia had the temporary interdiction of Ukrainian grain, which overwhelmingly goes to places like the Middle East and, and, and parts of Africa. How has that relationship changed? Are they trying to sell the conflict in any particular way, rhetorically at least, to these nations? Um, and, and just, you know, what, is, what, is, what do the discussions look like there? That's a great question. Uh, obviously, you know, also great for me because, you know, this is something I uh, study. Um, yes, uh, the Russians made an effort to uh, create alternative voting blocks in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and this particularly is clear in the United Nations. You know, all the re resolutions w condemning the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, were, uh, you know, they saw African nations, for example, not all of them, but many abstaining. Mm -hmm. Only one, as far as I know, actually actively supported Russia. That's Eritrea, which is totalitarian militarized state. Uh, but many other major countries, such as South Africa, for example, uh, Sudan, uh, chose to sit on the fence. Mm. And I think that's a return on the investment that the Russians made in the Global South, particularly in Africa over the past uh, decade and a half. And uh, I think uh, generally when you look at the relationship between Russia and the uh, Middle East, but particularly Africa, I think there is the state of that relationship is an indication of how Russia positions itself vis-a-vis -vis the West. In the 1990s when Russians were trying to get closer to the West and mm -hmm. were trying to sort of to move away from the Soviet past, uh, Africa was largely abandoned. Mm. And it was only in the new millennium when 
uh, with the ri rising oil prices and with a more assertive Russian foreign policy, growing antagonism against the West, uh, that they made an effort to reach out to Africa and to establish close relationship. Uh, how successful this will be, I think it has been successful al already mm -hmm. based on the diplomatic behavior of some African nations. Long term, hard to tell. All right. Well, thank you so much for your very kind thoughts and, and very interesting analysis. And thank you so much for making time to join us today and, and speak about all these topics and to kind of cover some of these um, under-discussed parts of, of this story. Thank you so much. Thank you. I would like to thank everyone here at the Global Current, especially the crew, the executive producer, Jasmine DeLeon, associate producers, Eric Bunce and Hamza Khan, technical producers, Andrew Okulia and Bobby Kyle. This has been a special episode where we interview faculty and professionals about their field. I am Kieran Besançon, your host for today, and I hope you enjoyed. The Global Current is brought to you by Seton Hall University. You can catch our show every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Thank you so much for listening and see you on the next one.